pandemic. Coronavirus pandemic. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. Hello and welcome to another interview episode with Holding the Line, Journalists Against Censorship. I'm Rosero Shaniwa. It is Wednesday morning, the 5th of October, 2022, and I'm delighted to welcome back James Corbett for another discussion about his work and to get some insights into how the world really works. James, in my opinion, requires no introduction, but I will introduce him because our aim is to reach new audiences as much as to speak to existing converts, and some of you may not have heard of them. James hosts and produces the very well-known and very well-respected Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source and outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. James himself is an award-winning investigative journalist and has lectured on geopolitics at the University of Groningen's Studium General. He has also delivered presentations on open-source journalism at the French Institute for Research in Computer Science at TEDx Groningen and at Ritsumaiken University in Kyoto. The Corbett Report is essential viewing for an understanding of how the world works and how powerful institutions operate in the open and in the shadows shape history. Today, we're going to discuss one of James's latest pieces of work, which is an epic three-part documentary series entitled False Flags, A History of Al-Qaeda, or A Secret History of Al-Qaeda. It takes you on a mind-blowing journey into the history that shapes geopolitics in the Middle East and gave birth to Al-Qaeda. Crucially, it draws on a bank of evidence that is so rich in quality and depth that even if you knew 9-11 was a false flag event, your jaw will still drop at the extra weight that James brings to bear on that ineluctable conclusion. I actually think that even the terror suspects who were involved in the 9-11 plot, if they were still alive, would be surprised at some of the revelations in this new piece of work. Ultimately, I think the aim of this documentary series is to expose the true meaning of 9-11. In many respects, you can't really understand what's happening now unless you understand 9-11. Not just the evidential holes in the narrative, but getting to the heart of how the deep state used 9-11 in its aftermath. That is crucial to the whole story because the reasons for 9-11, the why of 9-11, is unfolding right now. The project is continuously morphing. The terror suspects in 2001 all had Arabic names and came from faraway places in the Middle East. Today, if you disagree with the orthodoxy of the day, and if you express that disagreement in ways that threaten the government's program, you are the terrorist, a domestic terrorist. James, a huge welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me back on. It's a pleasure to be here again. Um, James, you've been doing a lot of work on false flags and the war of terror or the war. Well, it is the war of terror. That's what you call it in the documentary. Um, uh, Bush and his pals call it the war on terror. <laughs> but you've been doing a hell of a lot of work on false flags um, as, for as long as the story has been around. Um, and in fact, you were a pioneer in this area. And now, 22 years later, you decide to revisit this epic, uh, this revisit this topic with this epic documentary series. What I'd like to know is, and what, what everybody else would like to know is, what prompted you to revisit and blow more holes in the official Al-Qaeda 9-11 narrative? Um, what have you uncovered that you didn't know before? Um, and what, in what ways has your thinking changed as a result of diving back into the rabbit hole? It's a good question. And to answer it, I would say that this work is the fruition, the coming to fruition of the last at least 15 years of research that I've been doing on this subject. And it was more of a a collecting and and collating information rather than some sort of revolutionary change in my understanding of this subject. It was an attempt to line all the ducks up in a row because I think this is particularly the type of subject that is well-suited to this type of treatment. Any slice of this documentary, any piece of this puzzle that you put out on the table in front of someone could be rationalized away. There is some way to explain that or, oh, it's uh, it's blowback or uh, this is incompetence or things along those lines. But when you line uh, literally not just a few, not just dozens, not just hundreds, but literally thousands of these facts up in a row, it tells a certain story. And I felt the 
I felt the need to really show this story in its entirety from from this point to this point. And even so, even five plus hours of documentary later, I still feel I've only skimmed the surface of it, but at the very least enough to show people that there is a story there. So I don't think that I came to any sort of revolutionary new understanding of the subject through the process of putting this documentary together, but even for myself, even knowing many of the pieces of this puzzle before I even started in on the subject on on the, this particular documentary, it was that process of bringing all the information together and put, laying it out that at times left me even flabbergasted by the enormity of this and the fact the the sad fact that even in the alternative independent media, I think even after twenty one years uh, now since nine eleven two thousand one, there still has been very, very, very little attention paid to this sort of grander geopolitical story that is part of this centuries-long, really, history that uh, became focused on one particular day with four airplanes in, in a few different locations, and that became the, 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 such the, the laser-like focus of the alternative independent media to the point where they completely ignored the much, much bigger story that was going on. So I felt the need to come in and put this together, especially because I think when you do that and you show that the war of terror that was built upon this myth um, is itself a, a myth, a narrative that has been constructed out of all of these uh, individual lies, I think anyone who experiences that going down this particular rabbit hole and seeing the lies and and probably presumably much of the audience having lived through the last couple of decades of the construction of this myth at the very least will be able to recognize the process of how this type of myth is constructed so that they can then deconstruct it on the fly in the future because as I think people already know, but it's it's a point worth hammering home. Yes, if we do not know history, we will be doomed to repeat it. And yes, it might take a different flavor or a different spin in different eras, but it will be the same sorts of lies sold in the same sorts of ways. I mean, I don't know. This is, Obviously, you've hinted at what happened to you, but when I watched that documentary again, I was um, taken aback at, at how relevant it was to today. I mean, I initially thought, I, I, like you, didn't know as much about 9-11 as you did, but I knew a bit. And watching it again made me realize just how it's being applied, how principles and tactics are being applied today. So, so it is incredibly relevant. Um, let's move on to the next question. I, you, you, you've come to the startling conclusion that 9-11 that was made to happen because intelligence agency aid to terror suspects is actually the defining feature, not just of 9-11, but all previous uh, terror stories. And in fact, you know, in the days, months and weeks after 9-11, there was this canard that um, as leaks came out that intelligence agencies might have known a little bit more about it than, than, than they were letting on. There was this canard that um, they were incompetent, that uh, the agencies weren't joined up. And of course, the result of that was that, um, hey, in order to join up the agencies, let's give them billions more. Um, but, but you've comprehensively demolished um, theories that attribute intelligence failures to incompetence. Um, can you give viewers a teaser about the evidence, about how the evidence that you've gathered works against theories that rest on mistakes or incompetence? I think the incompetence theory or the blowback theory, who could have possibly predicted, um, starts to fall apart when we start to interrogate the fundamental assumptions that are at play here. One of which is that uh, the, the uh, it's almost an impossible task for these intelligence agencies playing defense against these international terrorists because the intelligence agencies have to get it right every single time to thwart every single attack, but the terrorists just have to get lucky once. And that, I think, is a very uh, a compelling lie for a lot of people. Well, they got lucky once. This operation went through. But when you, again, when you look at the actual history of this story, you see that the terrorists did not get lucky once. They got lucky over and over and over and over and over and over again. And not just from uh, things falling through the cracks or things that, that, that got missed along the way, but through the active intervention of the intelligence agencies at identifiable documentable points where they had to actually intervene in things that were already taking place 
and uh, the the end result of which was 9/11. At at any rate, we can say that 100% documentably without even venturing onto the limb of speculation with regard to that. So examples of that that come to mind. Uh, I, I point to many of these characters that populate this story and their their various inter inter intersections with the intelligence community at various points. Going back, at the very least, we could go back to characters like the blind sheikh, Omar Abdel Rahman, who was let into the United States in 1990, despite being on a terrorist watch list run by the U.S. State Department. There was a CIA operative in the State Department who actively intervened to approve six of his seven tourist visa applications, um, as was later reported as a reward for the blind sheikh's service to the CIA in Afghanistan. And so then he becomes the nexus of this cell that goes on to perpetrate such things as the World Trade Center bombing 1993 and the landmarks plot and uh, and uh, other parts of this sort of the precursor to what would become the war of terror in the United States itself. Again, when you look at the characters that are populating th those plots, you see all of the various interventions uh, that the intelligence agencies made, including the fact that they were uh, these groups were largely trained and handled by uh, Ali Mohammed, which is a name that most people probably do not know, even again in, in uh, independent media circles, much to our detriment, because that is, for my, to my mind, probably the most absolutely mind-blowingly completely inexplicable part of the Al-Qaeda myth to the to the extent that he's just generally not even mentioned in 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 most mainstream histories of Al-Qaeda because there's no way to explain it and I won't try to summarize the entire amazing career of Ali Mohammed here I will direct people to the documentary but a, a, a literal CIA operative at some point who was let go from the CIA, entered the United States, ended up training special forces at Fort Bragg, even as he was making weekend trips to Brooklyn to handle this cell that would be part of the cell that would go on to stage the World Trade Center bombing and uh, all of this craziness with Ali Mohammed. Again, you really have to see the story unfold to even begin to believe it. Um, it, it continues to extend. Um, I, I go through the story in very, very short summary of uh, uh, Khalid al-Maidhar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, who are two of the alleged hijackers of the 9-11 plot, who came from a terrorist meeting in Malaysia in, uh, in 2000, came to the United States under, essentially under the watch of the CIA. The CIA knew that they were coming, knew that these people were associated with the Al-Qaeda organization, and then actively intervened to prevent that information from being passed to the FBI. It wasn't something that it just didn't get reported or somehow slipped through the cracks. No, they we, we have documentable I, uh, proof from the mainstream perspective. I, again, I'm not going on a speculative limb here that they, uh, they act, the CIA actively intervened to stop that information going to the FBI for 18 months to the point where uh, as as Richard Clark, as uh, various FBI um, uh, uh, agents have said, if we had had that information even a week or two before uh, we had it, we would have broken this plot. We would have rounded up all these characters. Now, again, this is all going from the mainstream version of what happened on 9-11, which I do not, of course, believe hook, line, and sinker because, as even an NBC News investigation later revealed, a full 25% of all of the footnotes in the 9-11 Commission's final report, including all of the ones that were really operative with regards to the operation itself and the conspiracy, uh, the official conspiracy of 9-11, the Al-Qaeda conspiracy, um, sourced from torture testimony, testimony extracted through torture, including testimony extracted from people who were forced to sign confessions that they were not even allowed to read those are the, that's the type of evidence that the 9-11 Commission final report was based on. So let's take all of this with a grain of salt. But even from within that narrative, we can point to the fact that the, uh, the intelligence agencies actively intervened to make sure that this, this, at the very least, cover for whatever was really happening on 9-11 was allowed to proceed as, uh, as planned. Um, I, Again, there are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of different points with regards to that story in this documentary. But I think, once again, it's the accretion of evidence that you start to see when you lay it out on the table that makes it 
undeniable. And something that I'm particularly proud of is the fact that this is not a speculative out on a limb documentary. It absolutely comes from source documents that even even people who will only look at mainstream documents will be able to look at this uh, uh, documentary and they may think that can't possibly be true, but th then they will go to CorbettReport.com slash Al-Qaeda, where there's the complete 50,000 plus word transcript of the entire documentary. And every single document, everything that I list is linked back to its source document. So you can go and read it for yourself and start to find out the true scope of this uh, multi-decade long conspiracy. Again, I'm just going to emphasize to uh, viewers, you really must go and watch this documentary. The evidence that James produced is um, jaw-dropping. Um, it's got amazing stuff that will test your powers of credulity and incredulity. Um, you know, you've got uh, CIA operatives um, working in consular agents and rubber stamping visas. You've got um, the head of the... Um, uh, counter terror, the, the counter terror czar and the Bush and Clinton administrations on camera pointing the finger at the very top of the CIA. It's it, you've got to watch this. Um, so yeah. Um, now, James, I, I don't think we can talk about debunking 9 11 myths, um, without debunking a central myth, um, which relates to what Al Qaeda really was. Now, the myth created about al-Qaeda and bin Laden um, was that he was the head of an army of well-organized cadres with a command structure capable of activating cells across the globe. What's the reality? Uh, the reality is, in fact, again, was broached and even even to some extent admitted in the mainstream and by some of the characters who could ultimately ended up constructing and promoting the war of terror myth at the very beginning when I think the narrative had not congealed yet. So I think in the minds of the general public having lived through the war of terror, they would tend to think, oh, Al-Qaeda was this tight-knit uh, group that, that acted like some sort of mafia-like organization or some sort of military structure where there is a hierarchy and you had Osama bin Laden as the capo di tuto, tutti capo and you've got uh, his lieutenants underneath him and they're op operating these different cells and it's this top-down hierarchy. Um, that, 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 was, that was something that was, I think, meant to be put in the minds of the public, but no one ever really came out and actually promoted that particular myth in in any of the mainstream official sources and documents and the scholarly work on this. No, the idea was always that Al-Qaeda was more of a, a brand name, essentially, that um, at the very most, you could say, was, was meant to be sort of like a franchise. And that's essentially how it has presumably operated, at the very least for the past couple of decades, where you have the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was started by a Jordanian who ended up going to Iraq after the U.S. invaded, and he ended up creating this terror cell that then he made a deal with Osama bin Laden. Okay, we'll be Al-Qaeda in Iraq, okay, and getting the blessing and all of that. At, at least that's the, the sort of story that's sold to the public about that. So it isn't like this is some sort of organization and there's a payroll, well... There are various ways in which uh, people were put on payrolls and things in Afghanistan or in Sudan or other places where it operated. But uh, the idea of that top-down structure was always a myth that was, I think, even gestured to even actually um, by George W. Bush on, on his, in his speech uh, to Congress on September 20th, 2001, essentially announcing the War of Terror. He said, the evidence we have about the 9-11 attacks gathered, uh, we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist organizations known as Al-Qaeda. And I think that that might be the best pithy explanation of this. Yes, at the most, you could say this was a loosely affiliated group of terrorist organizations known as Al-Qaeda, and which Osama bin Laden might, might have served as some sort of money man for this. But when we start to deconstruct that, okay, this is an organization, and there are people who swear they're, you know, they're, they're members of this, they've got their card, and they're, they're going to go out and operate as part of this Al-Qaeda organization. Once you start to deconstruct that, and you start to realize this is sort of loosely knit groups of people who know each other, who decide to come together on this particular plan or operation, and so they decide, they, they, they meet with these people, and they get funding from these people, that's when you start to 
understand how this type of operation not only can work, but how, more importantly, I think the points at which intelligence agents and other outside forces can become part of this mix of what we know as Al-Qaeda, and they insert themselves into these operations and start start to direct plans in one way or another. So that's how we we can start to understand what this really is. It's not it's not an organization. There is no group with a membership card that you're going to get. It's just people who know each other who may trust each other to some extent, may not know this person, but this person comes in with some money for this operation. So okay, now we're going to go start doing this. And uh, I I think that's that's the the milieu in which we can see even again even if we take at at face value some of these ideas about how Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was organizing this and was becoming a money man and and funding things through uh, various agents and cutouts to get to Mohammed Atta who was in the United States and other such things then you start to interrogate okay well then who is Mohammed Atta and first of all are there multiple Mohammed Atta's? Um, there, there are reports of a Mohammed Atta having tried to uh, uh, purchase or acquire a, a prop plane for a crop duster plane that, that he specifically made a big deal about. He wanted space to put as much chemicals inside of it as possible, just space for one pilot so that he could fly this thing. Why are you doing this? Who are you? Why? What are you doing this? But this entire story of someone who absolutely on the record swears uh, this was Mohammed Atta who came in and was asking about this, but Mohammed Atta wasn't didn't officially enter the United States until later. So who was this person who was operating under the name Mohammed Atta? Who was the person in Florida who was dating the pink-haired stripper that uh, who alleges Amanda Keller who alleges that uh, Mohammed Atta was consorting with Rudy Deckers and the other people at the flight uh, training center in Florida? They were doing cocaine. They were running drugs. This is, again, this is another story. Was this another person or was this the Mohammed Atta that was part of this plot? And how does this nexus into the official story? Of course, this doesn't go into the official story in any meaningful sense. The 9-11 Commission doesn't look at these parts of the story. But once we start to interrogate the idea that this was some sort of militarily directed operation, we can start to look at the individual players who at the very least acted as patsies or dupes or toys in these operations and see, okay, well, how, who, who were they interacting with and how did they get their funds and from where and what were they doing in this plot? And we can start to look at it more on an individual level. Yeah. I think that the key t- takeaway for me was that, you know, once you understand from the documentary what Al-Qaeda actually was, you realize that there's no way that this um, amorphous group um, could do what uh, the intelligence agents alleged that it did. Um, one of the ways I thought about it was that it was a sort of think tank, but even that, it gives it a little bit too much uh, credit and, and structure. Um, it wasn't a very thoughtful think tank, but um, the think, fact, think tank of two or three individuals at any given point in time. And, but yeah, I, I think that- to be, to be honest, I think the best and pithiest explanation would be Al-Qaeda is Al-Qaeda, which <laughs> I think gets at the heart of the matter because I do believe there are actual- Muslim radicals who really are, who really do want to commit terror attacks and really are motivated by that. But these organize, these organizations, especially the well-funded high profile ones like an Al-Qaeda are clearly interfacing with intelligence. And there are intelligence agencies that have infiltrated and are, are in various ways manipulating these plants so that you could have an operation that people within the operation genuinely believe this is a terror attack that we're launching against the great state in the United States, but don't understand that they are being directed, funded, doors are being opened at key times by people who are allowing this to take place for various reasons. So that it can be an operation that seemingly came together organically, but is not taking place organically. It is being made to happen. Absolutely. And, and the people um, lower down the chain in both an Al-Qaeda and CIA would not have an idea of this. But I think those savvy ones higher up would know that each party was actually using each other. I mean, the Ali Mohammeds would know that not only was the CIA using him, but he was using the CIA and they were doing this dance um, in this game. And, and ultimately, the more powerful party, which was the CIA, would, would get to decide the outcome and 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 when when the when the act ends <laughs> so yeah um now if 9 11 
was made to happen. The next question has to be why? I think there are very many, many reasons for this. And I tried to gesture to, at the very least, gesture to these reasons. But um, you you pick a general area, and I think there was a reason that people in that area would be interested in having this happen. The the obvious one, I think, from our perspective after 21 years now of war of terror havoc that has been wreaked on the world in the name of 9-11 is geopolitical. Clearly, this was the carte blanche for a complete attempt, at any rate, at reordering the Middle East, certainly at installing U.S. military bases uh, throughout the region and uh, a, a seemingly a seemingly permanent um, military presence there, um, although what happened in Afghanistan is quite startling um, last year, perhaps not unexpected in the long run, but still startling for the way that it took place, again, under suspicious circumstances. Um, but clearly there were geopolitical benefits, and the benefits um, were certainly not just for the United States. I, I think one of the obvious um, beneficiaries of what the reordering that took place in the Middle East was Israel, which had... Um, through various um, uh, documents, like the Clean Break document, which I talk about in the documentary that was cons that was written um, for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu um, by various um, uh, American uh, neocons who would eventually go on to literally populate the Bush cabinet. Um, so these people were writing documents talking in the 1990s about how ultimately we need to topple Saddam Hussein in Iraq in order to destabilize Syria um, as a way of exerting Israeli, or at the very least, getting rid of Israeli um, uh, foes in the region and de destabilizing them. Um, so th those types of geopolitical concerns are obvious, I think. And uh, there are economic benefits. So again, five plus hours in this documentary, but this documentary was very much laser-like focused on Al-Qaeda and that, that particular story. So I think it needs to be supplemented by other uh, things that I've done in the past, like, for example, um, my work on 9-11 War Games, which is a different documentary I did a couple of years ago, corporatereport.com slash 911 War Games, where I laid out... Um, I'm sorry, 9-11 trillions. I'm getting my own documentaries mixed up. CorbReport.com slash 911 trillions, where I lay out the economic um, ramifications of 9-11. There were numerous um, uh, uh, economic beneficiaries of what took place that day. Um, the, the most obvious and, and uh, one that would, I think, occur to the general public was the thing that was announced and talked about, uh, in, even in, broached in the mainstream in the first few weeks after 9-11, and then pretty much swept under the rug was the put options. And most people think of it as put options on United Airlines and American Airlines. That was certainly part of it, but there were put options on a number of companies associated. Um, for example, companies that were in the World Trade Center buildings. Uh, there were call options on, uh, I, I believe Raytheon, at least some military contractors that definitely ended up benefiting from the war of terror. So there was that aspect of it. But beyond that, um, you start looking at uh, the uh, beneficiaries like Lucky Larry Silverstein and his lucky lease of the World Trade Center complex um, just months before these attacks take place. And of course, he not only insured them, he doubly insured them. Um, uh, I believe that the, uh, the Port Authority was holding a, a billion dollars worth of insurance. Larry Silverstein went for three and a half billion and then ended up arguing it's two attacks, so I get seven billion. He ultimately ended up getting four plus billion dollars out after the final settlement, but still, um, not a bad payday for such a terrible event. And wouldn't you know it, Larry Silverstein was slated to be uh, at the top of uh, one of the towers that morning for a morning meeting, as he did every Tuesday at, during that uh, time period. But his wife reminded him at the last moment he had a doctor's appointment that day, and you don't want to miss it. So he wasn't in the buildings that day. But of course, the people that he had called to that meeting were. Um, I, again, that's that's only a small slice of it. Perhaps the bigger slice of it is the $2.3 trillion at that time, what ultimately ended up being $8.5 trillion before they stopped keeping count and has been estimated by Catherine Austin Fitz and other researchers at over $20 trillion, but we really have no idea because they are now officially allowed to cook the books that went missing or are unaccounted for in the Pentagon's coffers. It doesn't necessarily mean that $20 trillion was sitting there in a bank account and is now no longer there. It means 
we have no idea. This amount of money is moving through, but we can't account for where it went or how or who. It might be out there somewhere. Anyway, we'll 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 try to balance a budget sometime in the coming century, honest. Um, so there are the economic beneficiaries, there are the geopolitical beneficiaries, and then perhaps most importantly to the audience, the general audience out there, is the the final point of the documentary, which sadly, amazingly, was condensed down into a few minutes at the very end of part three, but I think in some ways might be the point of the documentary, the War of Terror was never really about these terror groups. It was never about Osama bin Laden. It was never about Al-Qaeda. It was about the war on you, you out there in the general public, because the entire apparatus for the war of terror, not only the military tools that they play with overseas and then get to bring home, like the LRAD sonic uh, microwave weapons and other such things that have been battle-tested in Iraq and other places and then are brought home in, say, the 2009 uh, G20 at Pittsburgh to be used on the general population. How dare you have this unlawful assembly? We've declared a free speech zone and you are outside of the free speech zone, so you must disperse. And then they will start using these uh, LRAD and other weapons. So not only the actual weaponry, but then more importantly, perhaps the legal framework. Uh, obviously, the Patriot Act uh, passed in the immediate wake of 9-11, although obviously not written in the wake of 9-11. It was literally sitting on the shelves waiting for an event like 9-11 to come along in order to justify its passage. And it wasn't, it didn't stop with the Patriot Act. Um, there are many different things along the ways. The, uh, the NDAA, the uh, the, the Defense Authorization Act, and I don't remember which particular year, but um, perhaps 2010, 11-ish, somewhere in there, where they started to declare that um, Americans could be declared enemy combatants and be potentially whisked away without ever, without any trial, without even any notice, and uh, held as enemy combatants um, by the U.S. military. They could be killed. There was the presidential assassination list that came out um, that was... Briefly, some sort of controversy for a, a month or two, I suppose, under the Obama reign, but is now largely forgotten. Oh, yeah, the president can and actually has ordered assassinations of American citizens because he has declared them um, to be uh, enemy combatants in the terror, the war of terror. So the entire sort of uh, infrastructure, the Department of Homeland Security, all of these incredibly fundamental changes to the fabric of what people at least thought of as the beacon of the free world, the United States, the land of freedom and democracy and whatever people want to rally around, clearly is now something completely different. And 9-11 was at the very least used as the justification for the, the outward change in that status. So there were a lot of beneficiaries um, that for 9-11. And it would, be, it would be difficult to say that the real beneficiaries of this were the radical Muslim terrorists who wanted to strike at the United States. Yeah. And um, just to titillate viewers um, who and get them to go to that documentary, um, when you mentioned the 2.3 million, um, the trillion, trillion, trillion miss, yeah. um, from the government budget, um, my mind immediately went back to the the um, uh, bit in the, the, the Pentagon plane. So viewers, um, you, there's, a, there's a bit there about the, 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 the plane that flew into the Pentagon and a link between the 2.3 trillion, which you'll, you'll um, want to, to follow. Um, now, James, you've, you've, you've hit sort of the the gut punch of the documentary um and um yeah i mean you know in your documentary you say you know what the public has failed to realize that the war on terror was never really about bin laden about al-qaeda about radical muslims at base it was it wasn't even about reshaping the middle east it was about us now i kind of disagreed slightly with that and i want to explore that um ever so slight disagreement. And maybe we don't disagree. This is what I want to, 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 to tease out. And, I, you know, putting aside that whole aim of, of installing the surveillance state architecture to declare um, its own citizens domestic terrorists, I can't help thinking that um, the Machiavellian project for the new American century um, and the, 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 the false flag planners, I can't help thinking that when they go into these projects, they go into it with the mindset of, of going on a long trip to a large mall with a primary shopping list, but with the attitude that they've got to tag on as much to that shopping list as they possibly can, um, because that trip might not be 
they might not be able to make that trip again, you know. So I kind of think that there had to be some sort of geopolitical goals um, in order to ensure that power remains concentrated in the right places. And I guess implicit in that observation is, you know, um, and the way that they, uh, goals in reshaping the Middle East. And, and, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you, when you talk about reshaping the Middle East is, is Israel's ambitions in regard to how they want the Middle East to look. And, and Israel, in many respects, is, is the, the tail that wags the dog, in my opinion. So my question is, when you look at the Middle East today from this geopolitical perspective, um, do you think, and, and, you, and, and if you look at it from the perspective of the false flag planners and the planners of the project for the new American century, do you think they got what they wanted in the Middle East? Or is there evidence that there is in fact ideological blowback um, from this perpetual war in the Middle East? You know, has Iran been strengthened or has it been weakened? Um, you know, drawing Russia into the Middle East, was that a good idea or a bad idea? You know, what, did they really get what they wanted, do you think? Yeah, very important questions. And I'm glad that you're uh, teasing that out because I think it is important to get to because as we start to now, I think we do start to venture out onto that speculative limb because obviously I was not in the planning room of the, this sort of operation. So I can I can only look at it from the outside and what we what we can look at and then what we can say with informed speculation. Uh, before we get into the speculative side of it, though, then yes, absolutely. As I mentioned, not only the clean break document that I talked about in the documentary, but you could point to other Israeli uh, foreign policy planning documents like the Oded Yunon plan uh, for the greater greater Israel, um, which was, uh, I believe, published in the early 1980s, which was also talking about reshaping um, the Middle East in the service of essentially assuring um, Israeli security. And I think that obviously was one of, as I say, one of the obvious beneficiaries of of 9-11, at least geopolitically, was Israel. And perhaps that's why you have the former Israeli prime minister just happening to be there in the scene at the BBC studios within, literally within two hours of the the events starting to take place, already talking about how this is going to start the war on terror. Well, wow, okay, well, I guess we got the marching orders. So clearly, I think there's obviously that side of it. Now, I think one of the things that we should point out here is that this is, I, I think this is one of the arguments against the idea that 9-11 was a completely and totally synthetic event that was created from scratch, totally out of every single uh, bin, bin Laden and KSM and all these people are just invented fictional characters in some kind of grand play. The the one of the arguments against it is well then why didn't you invent some Iraqi agents that uh, that can get blamed as the hijackers so that you have the direct link so you can go in and start doing exactly what you want to do? Why go through the circuitous route of having all these Saudis? And then we'll blame it on Afghanistan, and then we'll switch over to some. Uh, Saddam Hussein. Sorry, I'm getting my boogeyman all mixed up here. Um, so I think that 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 does gesture to the fact there. I think there were operational plans that were hijacked, as it were, to use that f- phrase, and then um, things were moved along in that direction. But that also speaks to the fact that I think this is not some idea of some cabal that sits over every event that's taking place on the planet and is just moving pieces like on a chessboard or something, it's not quite that simplistic. Um, there are events that are taking place. And I think um, the the people who are in positions of real power and generally monetary financial power will be positioned so that whatever whatever form those those events take, they'll be able to use them to their advantage. So when we start to look at that question of the reshaping specifically of the Middle East, obviously, the geopolitical reshaping that's taking place there, we start to encounter some interesting questions about that. Because presumably, if we take the neocons' plans at face value, it was, I mean, for example, obviously, something that PNAC, uh, the Project for a New American Century, had been writing about since its founding in 1998, um, was the overthrow of Saddam in order to get rid of you know his regime so that we can help stabilize and bring freedom and democracy to Iraq. And I think we all know what that means. But then lo and behold, what ultimately takes place from that destabilization? Suddenly, Iran starts to gain a lot more power by because, of course, the Shia population, the majority in Iraq, starts to take over the functions of government in Iraq and starts to become 
some sort of not certainly not a proxy for Iranian power, but at any rate more more towards the Iranian side of the ledger. And suddenly, oh no, now did did Israel's en- enemy just sort of increase in power because of this destabilization? What does that mean? Was that part of the plan? Well, then, and and yes, as you say. Russia getting involved in the region because of Syria and uh, it's it had Syrian ties and interests and uh, ports and other such things that that it wanted to protect. So going in and trying to destabilize uh, the uh, the government of uh, Assad would obviously bring Russia into the region. Was that part of the plan? And whose benefit is that towards? And that's where if we really want to get speculative, I would look at it from a layer above all of this, because I would believe that there are certainly people who are working towards what they see as their their interests, Israeli interests, American foreign policy interests uh, in the region. I would say there is a level above that, uh, which actually does um, want the sort of um, global chaos that will bring in the global multipolar world order. And I, I don't remember if we touched on this in our previous conversation. I have the feeling that we did. But at any rate, um, my thesis ultimately is that there is uh, a, a sort of layer above what we think of as the national and nation state interests that really does want uh, something beyond um, the, the the sort of parochial interests of this or that government. It's looking at the idea of literal global governance, not global government, no, 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 global governance, which will take place through a multilateral structure that is, I think the, the world needs to be transitioned over to, into that. You don't just suddenly find yourself in a new world order. A new world order takes shape and seems to be the logical endpoint of a series of increasingly uh, horrible events that the public will cry out for some sort of solution. And I, I did... I've been noting that ever since I first started doing this work 15 years ago, that one of the narratives that has been embedded in this is look at these crazy war on terror, Bush neocon, Israeli cabal that are leading us into this horrible mess. Uh, What we need is the United Nations to have real teeth and to come in and to sort this out and to be the the sort of arbiter of what's going on here. If we had a real United Nations or some sort of multilateral framework, this wouldn't be happening. And I think that's one of the narratives that's embedded in there. So I I take that actually as more support for my thesis that there is a genuinely global cabal or global oligarchy that is trying to um, use the, the chaos at the nation state level in order to bring us into the next stage of global governance. Okay, well, we'll we'll tease that up with a couple of more questions as we go along, um, because this is segueing nicely into the um, the, the the current um, situation. You know, let's 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 get more current. You know, we've got the proxy war, the cold war, the hot war with Russia. It's all of those things. Um, that's how mad the world is now, um, and it's 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 obvious that um, at the end of the Cold War in 1989 to 91, that signified um, for, for, for the NATO and the, the Project for New American Century uh, psychopaths, the need to, to create new conflicts to provide pretext for control agendas. Now, when we last spoke, I recall, you know, one of the things that you said is that they, they tend to take the long view. And um, you, you talk about that layer at the top, you know, taking the long view um, in, and thinking of these these changes um, in generational terms um, when going about achieving their aims. Now, I look at the mayhem of the last two and a half years, and I can't help thinking that may have been the case some years ago, but the war on, is it it still the case? I mean, the war on terror was quickly followed by the war on the virus, seamlessly followed by the war in Ukraine. Um, And it just seems to me to be this desperate push to to get this near feudal order and this biosecurity state substantially wrapped up by 2030, and I and my my question is if you know if they are desperate trying to get things wrapped up substantially wrapped up anyway by 2030, have they have they bitten off more than they can chew? Are they are they trying to fly too high, too fast, too soon? To to use the words of that song that I like, um, or is this extraordinary chaos and confusion that's been created by so many blast craters? Um, and in such short order, is it actually going to work 
in their favor to lock in the neo-feudal order um, before the mass of people even realize what's happened. And um, yeah, that's the question. Well, it's a it's an incredibly important question because it, uh, this is a point that I, I have noted and I, I believe I've talked about on the podcast in, in years prior is that I, I've always been of the understanding that given the sort of remarkable shifts in public opinion that we have seen even within our own lifetimes, let alone within the space of a few generations. Uh, don't worry, guys. The income tax is just a temporary war measure. It'll be gone before you know it. Um, things like that. Uh, the way that the, the public can be steered and, and ultimately shaped and completely transformed over the course of generations, it's always been my understanding that if the global oligarchs really did want to achieve this, this Agenda 2030 type idea, they would get it eventually. It would take maybe a generation, maybe a couple of generations, but they would get it. But why this headlong rush, as you say, towards this 2030 agenda that really does seem to be uh, foreshortening, events are foreshortening, shall we say. Um, why is that? It seems strategically like a blunder. And I, uh, as much as we were on a speculative limb before, I think we'd I would be at any rate even more so here because I can't, I really can't answer if there's any particular reason why why is 2030 this magic number that's cited in all sorts of policy and planning documents and why is the world seemingly getting more and more crazy at a faster and faster rate again I can only speculate about that um but uh, let's take a look uh, again if my if my fundamental idea is that we are doomed to repeat the past that we don't learn from and also if one of my fundamental ideas is that the war of terror was never really about the islamic boogeyman it was it was about us the creation of the homeland security state um then I think the way that we understand that over the past three years is the creation of the biosecurity state. And I've done work on that. Um, for example, corporatereport.com slash COVID 911. I, I did a, a exploration of from homeland security to biosecurity and how the paradigm flows almost effortlessly from one to the other. The key difference being that it isn't outwardly aimed at some sort of terrorist boogeyman. It is now inwardly aimed at every person as a potential spreader of some pathogen. So we have carte blanche as much as there was carte blanche in the war of terror paradigm to uh, lock people up and assassinate and do what you want with them, uh, that that power has been magnified through the biosecurity state. And this, uh, you could be an asymptomatic spreader. Um, so if we look at it through that angle, that, through that lens, um, even actually looking at it through the Homeland Security lens, we can see that every authoritarian power structure in the world was absolutely celebrating joyously at 9-11 because it gave them the excuse to crack down on their dissenters as terrorists. And every power structure in the world did that almost immediately. And of course, who was one of the first people to call Bush on the line and say, we're with you. We, we stand with you in this fight against terrorism. It was Putin, of course, because suddenly Putin and his war against Chechen terrorists, well, we're on the same team. We're, we're, killing the terrorists too. We're, we're with you. We're, we're all on board with this because again, it is the carte blanche. Now transfer that into the biosecurity paradigm. Which governments have stood up and said that this fundamental breach of human rights shall not pass and we are not going to lock down our civilization. We're not going to start injecting people with this genetic slurry. We're not going to start doing all of it. Who did that? Well, certainly, certainly none of the multilateral new polar world order um, people uh, Putin and Xi being two of the most gung-ho about this new biosecurity paradigm, because again, it provides the perfect opportunity to transition us over into what is the real long-term plan, the central bank digital currency, social credit system, whereby everyone will be surveilled, controlled, and, and algorithmically um, either allowed or disallowed from society, essentially, and their participation in society. That is where this is going. And every single power structure on the planet benefits from that um, because they get to control, literally control who is allowed to live and die essentially um, once these bars on this digital prison are really slotted into place. So yes, the craziness of the past few years in particular 
does seem like, oh, okay, so that whole War of Terror thing, who even thinks about that anymore? Now we're on to this new thing. But the new thing is the old thing. It's just even more so. It's just a further extension of it. And there are no major world leaders who are standing up against this and calling it out for what it is. No, no, the, the very multipolar world saviors that we're supposed to be lauding as some sort of great these are the opponents. We're against Russia. We're against China. But they're doing the exact same things to their own populations. Uh, again, if we don't learn the tricks, we will never, ever be able to see through them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's talk about Nord Stream because, you know, the documentary that you made um, is about false flags. And and and, and when, you talk, when you look at the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage, you think, ooh, you know... I'm not sure whether to classify this as a, as a, as a, as a false flag because it looks to me more like a military maneuver by NATO to ensure that the EU cannot negotiate its way out of the corner that it's painted itself into the 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 no energy this winter corner, and 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 the US is is not willing to risk giving its ally <laughs> any room for maneuver in a direction that would shift um, power away from the US. So. Um, and, and that's because the EU must have been contemplating negotiations with Russia in light of the severe pushback it's getting from citizens um, coming out into the street, protests, of course, which are being totally ignored by the USM. But essentially, you know, negotiations with Russia, I'm sure you'll agree, would have, would have led to the restoring of gas supplies, which would have been a, a categorical defeat for NATO and the US. So I can't help feeling that the US is lashing out wildly at, as the balance of power shifts at a pace that it can't control. Um, rather than admit defeat to Russia, uh, it's chosen to strangle its allies to death, which is defeat by other means, surely. So what is your view on all of that? Yes, you raise, again, a couple of important points that we should underline, one of which is the the sloppy way that false flag has entered the general lexicon. Uh, I have always noted it as one of the the sort of the victories, I would say, of the independent media over the past couple of decades, that at the very least, the population is now aware of the concept of false flag terrorism, false flag attacks. Why Why would the government attack itself is finally something that I think people at least understand uh, what that maneuver is about and who ultimately benefits from it. But unfortunately, yes, now every event that happens, no matter how it happens or in what way it plays out, is called a false flag. And that, I think, is a misnomer in a lot of instances. For example, I've heard people refer to, say, Pearl Harbor as a false flag, whereas if you are spec if you are positing that, uh, and I think for good reason, if you're positing that the British and the Americans knew about the Pearl Harbor attack in advance and let it happen, that isn't a false flag event. No, the Japanese did commit the attack, and they were blamed for the attack, so that is, by definition, not a false flag event. So there's sloppy ways in which this terminology um, is misapplied, and this might be a good example of it. Um, Especially because as we record this, the last I ever heard about the sort of geopolitical ramifications of the Nord Stream event was that the Russians had called for a Security Council meeting about the attribution for that event. How did it happen? And I haven't heard any details of what has if that uh, meeting has taken place or what it has concluded. But so far, I've heard no official accusation that it was Russia or that it was America. No one has come out on the world stage and said this was an attack. Um, clearly, there were explosions of some sort that were seismically recorded and reported. And uh, obviously, something has occurred there, but we don't know what. So false flag might be the wrong term to use here, at least until attribution is made by someone against someone. Um, but yes, the real question of attribution, and if this was an attack, then who would have possibly benefited from it? Certainly not the Russians. There is no possible way that the Russians could be said to have benefited from the blowing up of the infrastructure that they have spent years, years and years pumping lots of infrastructure development money and time and energy and diplomatic power into creating um, in order to forge those links with Europe and then just blowing them up on a whim I guess to say, yeah, yeah, we told you so. No, that doesn't make any sense. The only, I think, even plausible uh, explanation you could possibly come up with is that this is so obviously something that has been committed from the NATO side, 
presumably the Americans, but at any rate, NATO generally, that maybe the Russians staged it to make it everyone understand that it was the NATO side that was doing this. But at any rate, that doesn't really hold much water with me. No, clearly this was an attack on the literal link between Russia and the European Union, or at least the potential for such a link that was becoming a political issue, say, in Germany, where protests in in the days before this attack on the Nord Stream pipeline um, took place, protests were centering on Nord Stream, open Nord Stream, they were saying, as people in Europe are increasingly facing the prospect of a winter where they may not be able to heat their homes because of this geopolitical craziness. So as Europe as Europe starts to understand that the choices that they are making geopolitically have even whatever your sense on the sort of morality of foreign policy and whatever, at any rate, your ability to heat your own home, well, that's suddenly going to interest a lot of people. And it will require a very strong propaganda matrix in order to convince people that their interests lie in siding with, say, the United States, rather than siding with Russia or China or people who are uh, uh, geographically more sort of natural allies, you would say, if you're not thinking geopolitically, if you're just looking at the sort of the geopolitics of this, well, it would make more sense to have economic relations with people who are on your doorstep, who are the growing uh, economic powers in the world. How would you possibly sever those types of natural links that were starting to be fostered? Germany having, at any rate, Nord Stream was being constructed. They were increasingly uh, uh, trading with China. These sorts of new, this new balance of power shifting towards the Eurasian region rather than the old transatlantic alliances. That was obviously a growing problem for U.S. uh, establishment powers. And so it makes, it just makes logical sense that they, they would try to sever those links, in this case, quite literally by, say, blowing up a pipeline. Um, and and this is, again, a phenomenon that I've been talking about for years. I wrote an article in 2017 on U.S. battles Russia for the heart of the EU, talking precisely about this subject. And at that time, noting that the European Union sanctions that were being applied on Russia and specifically on companies that were involved in helping to construct Nord Stream 2 were clearly not to the benefit, not to the economic or the uh, the energy security benefit of Europe. It was to the benefit of the US that could then f- sell LNG and other such things to Europe at inflated prices. Um, and that's, that's exactly what's playing out now. So this is, I mean, th- there's a much bigger story going on here than just the blowing up of a, a single pipeline. Sure, sure. Um, James, I want to move to the next question, which is a question that we have broached in the past, but I, I, I need it. I need to ask it again and, and and tease it out again because you know things have moved on and um, my thoughts have changed. Um, perhaps yours have too. And and one of the things that constantly nags at me is this: is the geopolitical fracturing or the apparent fracturing that that seems to be taking place, and yet running parallels the continuance of a great reset by both NATO and the BRICS blocs, despite the fact that they are moving further and further apart. And I, I kind of attribute this to, to two things. I, I think that the, the, the powerful global factions have all agreed that a financial reset within with totalitarian centralized controls tagged on to that reset is the only way out of a collapsing global debt Ponzi scheme. Um, in which all blocks would stand to lose a great deal if the demolition wasn't properly controlled. Um, uh, and secondly, I can't help feeling that they can't agree on fundamental spheres of control within this grand new world order that that is, that is under construction, um, because uh, there's mistrust. Mistrust has emerged, um, and this mistrust emerges on existing historic. Uh, geopolitical fault lines. So I can't help thinking that they're now running parallel great resets um, with both sides, um, in which both sides aim to end up at the same sort of destination, which is this financial central bank digital currency, digital ID, population control system, um, but with geopolitical spheres of influence um, that run along historical fault lines in place. Um, so, you know, if they get their way, uh, the choice left to humanity is a choice between two nooses, <laughs> a NATO noose or a BRICS noose. What's your thought on that evolving situation? 
I think that there, to the extent that there's a real battle of ideologies going on, I suppose there are the adherents, the clinger, the bitter clingers to the unipolar idea that there can be some sort of singular power like the United States um, that functions through the system that we've known throughout the entirety of Pax Americana, through uh, the United Nations, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, these sorts of institutions that were created essentially to enshrine the the uh, the state of relations, say post 1945. Um, but I, I think that the people, obviously there are benefit, there are, um, es establishments, institutions, and individuals who benefit from that particular order and will not give it up easily or willingly. But having said that, I think it's quite obvious that that, that, uh, framework is reaching its ex expiration date. And I think the, the, the signals for that are all over the place. As you say, just the collapsing of the global debt Ponzi scheme, I think necessitates a changeover in world governance structure from the US essentially acting as creditor to the world through the world reserve currency and through this petrodollar system of recycling oil money back through the US banking system. And this, this kind of crazy way in which the United States has been enabled and empowered to be essentially the end, the economic and financial engine of the world. I, I think that that time is coming to an end. And uh, there are people who surprisingly, even within the NATO power block, even within the United States establishment institutional structure, understand that and are openly, openly advocating for the changeover to the new, um, the new, the new ideology, the other side of that, which would be the multi multipolar world order. So if people want to handle on this, I will direct them actually to the work of Ian Davis, who's a researcher in the UK, who's been doing some great work on this. And uh, he has a, uh, 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 a new series of articles up on Welcome to the New Multipolar World Order. And part one and part two have been posted at the time we're recording this. I don't believe part three has been posted yet. But in part two, he quotes a number of um, officials um, from the, the NATO bloc who presumably you would think they would like the status quo as it is, where essentially the U.S. is the umbrella of protection and safety in the economic powerhouse of the world and Russia and China are kept to the sidelines. But there's people within that structure who are calling for this new multilateral, multipolar world order. Um, he cites uh, Olaf Scholz. He cites Mark Carney. Um, he gives a quotation from um, Stuart Patrick, a CFR senior fellow. Um, but perhaps just to summarize that, you get uh, Lorenzo Bini-Smaggi from the ECB executive board, the European Central Bank, who was uh, suggesting back a decade ago, we have a multipolar economic world but no multipolar financial or policy world yet. How can we improve the functioning of the international monetary system? The first avenue is to start building a new institutional framework. This will have to be designed for this new multipolar world. And the second avenue involves implementing policies consistent with the transition to a more complete multipolar world in all its dimensions. When you start to really drill down on the policy statements, the speeches, the, the, the statements that a lot of these officials are making, it is gesturing towards the fact that we need the creation of this new institutional infrastructure of multilateral institutions. And I think, Again, when you see these dramatic world order changeovers, like the previous one that took place from the pre-World War II order to the post-World War II order, that involved World War II. I mean, these things do not generally happen peaceably and, and oh, okay, let's all agree. Okay, let's sign this document. No, it's generally all out literal global warfare or world-shaking events that make these things happen. And they are generally, they generally tend to happen in tandem with uh, changeovers in world reserve currency, which I think is, again, another part of what is on the table right now. I think we are already witnessing the beginning of that because we are about to transition from the US dollar as the world reserve currency into a world in which uh, multi, what, what's the, the word for it? Is it multilateral CBDC? At any rate, there is MCBDC, which is coming on, on board right now. Um, you have various states implementing various proposals for retail, um, CBDCs that will be used by their populations, programmable money that will be controlled directly by central banks and which, uh, uh, Federal Reserve governor, uh, whose name is going to escape me, Powell, uh, oh. Jerome Powell, uh, recently said uh, will not involve privacy. 
So, I mean, they're they're saying outright, no, we, the central bank will see all of your transactions. We will determine what you can and cannot buy. Uh, that is, I think, really the grand prize underlying all of this. And then the multilateral, multipolar world order that is constructed on top of that monetary edifice will be reflective of that um, that that sort of uh, viewpoint in which, yes, there will be global, uh, there, there will be regional spheres of influence and regional powers and what have you, but they will be working under this sort of overarching global um, uh, framework, financial monetary framework, which will be essentially control, ultimate control. And whether that control is coming from uh, you sitting wherever you are, me sitting wherever I am, maybe that control is coming from Moscow, maybe it's coming from Washington, maybe it's coming from Timbuktu. At any rate, for the average person, it's going to look pretty much the same. It's going to be total control over your ability to buy, sell, and interact, and even to leave your own home. So I think that's the prospect of what we're facing as we plunge headlong into this multipolar world order. Okay. James, um, it's a little bit of a depressing note to end on. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> struggle will continue, <laughs> but um, we are going to have to end it here. It's, uh, as ever, hugely interesting talking to you. Um, I'm just going to stress again to everyone watching this, um, you've got to go to um, uh, CorbettReport.com. Links, I will provide links um, in the notes to this um, to, get to, that, to, get, to get to those documentaries. You just go to CorbettReport.com, click on the button that says uh, click here for documentaries, um, grab some popcorn and be prepared to, to be blown away uh, by the story you thought you knew but really didn't. And um, you know, you can find us on, on holdingtheline.com. I will again post uh, um, uh, links to that in the show notes. So, James, huge thank you. Um, uh, until the next chat we have, um, carry on doing the wonderful work that you're doing. Well, let me thank you in return because I know there are far too few people who are concentrating on these uh, subjects. And so I appreciate the opportunity to present this to your audience. Very welcome. <laughs>